Good morning. It's good to be with you again today. I'm always excited for these times to get to walk through the Word with you and see how it addresses our hearts and shows us Jesus and then kind of leads us in how we walk in light of that. And uh, if you're watching this, it's most likely because you're still uncomfortable um, with being back with us at our physical setting. And I just, again, like I said last week, I want to speak on behalf of everybody and just say that we miss you. We totally understand and we love you and we look forward to the time where you can be with us again um, where we could all be under the same roof and at this point I don't care if we all have masks on or not. <laughs> I just love to have everybody together um, and celebrate what God has done together. Um, but right now I'm excited to do this with you. So if you have a Bible or a device that you're using it'd be good for you to turn to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, we're going to finish out the third chapter of Philippians. Um, we are slow walking through this letter to the Church of Philippi a little bit. It probably could have been covered in eight or nine sermons, but there are so many pieces that are very applicable for what we're going through today. I don't want to miss any of them, and today is one of those moments. Um, one thing that I've learned when it comes to guiding and leading in times of crisis is that anytime a crisis comes, it does two key things. It disrupts us from what was normal, and it also actually speeds change up. Change that was likely to be happening or was going to happen slowly, it accelerates it. It's an amplifier of sorts. And that's what we've been seeing today. We have crises that have come and they've both disrupted us and they've accelerated change, both good and bad. You've probably seen this, this type of phenomenon happen uh, where you have maybe someone that's been meaning to get in better shape or maybe improve their health. They keep meaning to get around to it, but it doesn't really happen until they have a heart attack. Then it gets real, real fast. The crisis has come, it's disrupted their normal, and now what was going to be a slow change is now going to be accelerated change. Um, it's not just individuals that experience this either. I mean, total industries, complete industries can, can feel it. We've seen this because of COVID-19, which is a crisis, has caused a disruption in the entertainment industry, which is why some movies are going straight to on-demand video. That's likely something that was just gonna happen uh, over a longer period of time, but it's starting to speed up now. So you and I have both seen this and have felt this in different ways, um, where things have been sped up. Change has been sped up because of a crisis that has disrupted us. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. We've all been disrupted in these last few months, haven't we? Crises that have been stacked on top of more crises. But it's also speeding up some change. For instance, we're having a national conversation right now on what it means to have equality racially, what it means to have equity in our authority structures. We're, we're having conversations now that we probably haven't had at this tenor since the civil rights movement. And some of it's been good. Some of the changes have been a little odd. I mean, the disruption started with a cell phone capturing a Minneapolis officer who was killing a man. And that was like a spark set off dry wood. And now change has been sped up and amplified in 10 different directions. And not all of it has been good. But that's the thing about change. It's not always nice and tidy. Matt Norman, one of our beloved elders, he said it very wisely to the rest of us in a pastoral setting where he says, listen, change is messy. 
and that's been helpful for me. Change is messy. I think the fastest change happens to be the messiest change as well, and that's a lot of what we're seeing. And what happens is when crisis comes to us and we don't know what to do, we typically listen to the loudest voice in the room that sounds like they're the smartest voice in the room, right? We, we don't typically fall behind ideas. We, we fall rank and file behind people, loud people, smart people. And we take their ideas and we take their convictions and we adopt them and we make them our own because we don't know what to do in that moment. This is normal for us to do this, but it's not always healthy. Listen, it matters who you imitate your life after. It does. It matters who inspires you, who motivates you. It, it matters who you model your life after. It needs to be with care that you collect heavy, weighty voices that speak into your ideas and inform your ideas and your decisions. We should always be collecting our shelf of heavy, weighty voices, especially the ones that traffic in high wisdom. We should always be doing that. And listen, we also need to be prepared for the day where we become those voices to those who are behind us. You see a lot of people in the Bible who needed a mentor, and then they became mentors of sorts. David needed a mentor. Uh, Samuel was one of his mentors, and then David became a mentor. But Samuel himself needed a mentor. And then he became a mentor. The same thing with Paul. It's going to be true for you and me as well. Today, Paul is going to speak to us in Philippians 3, but he's going to speak to us through tears. This passage was emotionally written. I don't know if you've ever written anything through tears before. I have. You'll write a little bit. You'll weep. You'll stop and collect yourself. You'll go back, you'll write a little bit more, you'll have to stop and collect yourself. That's the kind of passage that we're getting to. Now, I don't know if he was weeping through this whole thing, but it's with tears that he writes this today. And he wants you to know a few things, okay? We're going to read about it. He wants you to know that you should imitate the right people. He wants you to know that you have a citizenship that is not here, but it is elsewhere. And he's going to show us what it means to weep for a people. So let's, let's walk through this passage. This is in chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 17. This is the word of the Lord for us today as Paul addresses us. And we're going to see Christ very clearly in this passage as well. It says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He has a big idea in this, and that's that this place, it's not our home. It's not even close. This isn't even close to our home. We're passing through this life as strangers, travelers, sojourners, 
pilgrims, however you want to say it. We're like exiles. We exist here and we invest here while we wait for another place. And Jesus actually describes this place as he's speaking to us in John 14. This is what the word says. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And so we have this place prepared and curated for us by Christ. And the best part about this place is that very simply Jesus is there. That's what makes this place a place of delight. He is saving a seat for those who he has called his own. It's a safe seat. It's a seat that will never be taken. It's a place of welcome. It's a place of no shame. It's a place of no guilt, no tears. Here it is. It's a place of no more crisis. No more crisis. He says in, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that, that God is preparing a place for you and me. Christ is preparing a dwelling place that no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard about, and no imagination has ever been able to conjure. We can't render an idea of how glorious this place is, this place that is not this place. And although that is our home, you and I are led to invest in this place where we're exiled for the glory of God, for the good of the people around us. I think knowing that this address is not our home, it should never lead us to abandon this world and just let it do what it does. It should intensify our love for it because we are here as image bearers, right? And we are here to exemplify the goodness of the gospel for the whole world to see. In fact, we see a little bit of this even back in the Old Testament where we see in Jeremiah 29, 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So we love Knoxville and we're going to invest in Knoxville. But very simply, Knoxville is not our home. I mean, Friends, this passage is timely for us. We are 128 days exactly from our votes being counted for the next president of the United States. In an election that most people consider to probably be one of the most volatile and explosively charged election cycles in, our, in modern history. And I don't know that I disagree with that. There is a lot going on right now. And we have an opportunity to invest in the land, for the land's good, in things like voting. You can vote to the glory of God. Listen, protesting, feel free to do that. You can protest to the glory of God. We can build and invest here to the glory of God. Yet, we're pilgrims. We're pilgrims passing through for a moment or two. It's like we're camping out here. We're not retiring here. And one of the things or truths that this will make true for us is whatever it is that we gain and lose in this place, right, in this life, it does not affect the economy of what we gain in the next life, our true home, which means you can lose all of your freedoms and not lose any of your freedoms. This is going to be important for some of you to hear right now. You can have your guns taken away and your free speech taken away. We can have our freedom from practicing religion totally removed, and yet we will all, as a people of God, not lose a single thing. Not a single thing. I think we need to hear this because some of us are overwhelmed as we read the news. 
and we think that everything is on the line and we think that our existence is in danger and we panic and we forget that God is God and we forget that he is in total control and we forget that we can never lose Jesus and nothing will separate us from the love of God. This week alone, just this week alone, I have seen calls for repealing the Star Spangled Banner and Mount Rushmore, both things that I've grown up with. It's, they're as American as American can be. It, it feels like, it seems like to me. These are things that you've grown up with. If it happens and we'd see the end of the Star Spangled Banner and they, I don't know how they'd get rid of Mount Rushmore, they'd have to fire missiles into it or something like that. I don't know what they would do, but if that went away, and if the Constitution of, of, of our country just burned in a trash can right in front of us, you lose nothing. You lose nothing. You lose a lot here. You lose nothing in your true citizenship, in your true home. Friend, listen. If you are Americans, you are citizens here, but you are citizens of a different nation in a different place first, we need to be careful not to conflate the two. I think this happens. One of the things that can smother a church over time is when we get our passports mixed up, right? Where this world becomes our home and our true citizenship is an afterthought. And I think the church is full of people who struggle with this. They live here as if their firm, permanent citizenship is here and there is no place waiting for them as if the gospel did not edit their very existence and I, and 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 this is why you see in a lot of people that get radically saved when when Jesus finds them they've lived a life of living hard playing hard working hard making as much money as possible is fast as possible, investing that money so that that money makes as much money as possible, so that you could take as much money as possible and retire as fast as possible to the coolest place as possible where you can find as many hobbies as you possibly can. And then right before you die, you leave as much money as you possibly can to your kids so that they don't hate you. And that's the purpose behind a lot of people and why they get out of bed in the morning. And then Christ finds them and they become radically saved and the purpose of their life is virtually the same. You just add a Sunday morning. <laughs> now there's Sunday services that they go to. But it's still all about making money and retiring as quickly as you can and fading off into the Caribbean sunset. It's still about that. But Jesus died on the cross to do more than rearrange our weekly calendar. A lot more. Big question for you. Why are you here? Not on this video. Why are you on this planet? Why are you here? What, what is the purpose behind your purpose in this world? What are you building towards? Here's a different question. How did you know to do that? How did you know to build towards that? Who told you that that's what you needed to construct your life around? Someone that you imitated. Someone's voice is shaping you. You see, Paul is weeping here and is virtually saying our hearts are here, invested, even emotionally invested in the people, but our home is elsewhere. So we're kind of out of sync with this place. We're out of step in a dancing term, but we're beautifully out of step. If you're a Christian, you're out of step with your neighbors. You're out of step with 
all the politically correct celebrities that you follow on Instagram. You're out of step with the goals of this world. You're out of step with the gods of this world. You're out of step with an unforgiving rat race. You're out of step. But you're beautifully out of step. This is how Jesus says it to a young man, a disciple who is wanting to follow him. And he says this in Matthew 8.20. He says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Listen, there is an unsettled nature to being a Christian. Always the pilgrim, never the resident. There's always a uh, like water that won't settle down. That's the posture of our Christian life. And the Philippians, just like you and me, were straddled, really with two passports. We're citizens here, but not really. We're also citizens somewhere else, so we're stuck in between. We, we're a people that stand outside of the culture, and yet sometimes we're tempted to follow culture and go right along step with culture. I want you to consider for a moment whether the stuff you get stressed out about is the same stuff that people who don't even believe in Jesus stress out about. Are you mad at the same thing that people who are far from God are mad at? Do you laugh at the same stuff, dream about the same stuff, shout at the same stuff that people who don't even love Jesus do? See how easy it is to imitate the wrong people? It's equally easy to settle in the wrong home. This is not our home, not even close. You know that phrase, rat race, interestingly enough, it's from the 1930s. We all kind of know what it means because we use it so much, but it actually was an Air Force term. Rat race, believe it or not, where pilots would fall follow a lead pilot, and anytime he would make a bank or a rapid turn or a pivot or some sort of a maneuver, they would all follow exactly the same. And it fits because we too, as a church, as Christians, can follow the culture. And when the lead pilot posts something, we repost it because it sounds good and everybody likes it. It seems to make sense. We just make the same pivots and rolls and banks and turns. This is why it's possible for you to know what the Word says about something very profound and important like sex or money or work. You know what the Word says and then you listen to a podcast and you hear someone who's really smart that the whole world respects say something that sounds smart but disagrees with the Bible and it puts you in the place. And sometimes in that place of trying to decide which, which resonates more, we choose what, what Paul would say is an enemy of the cross. We imitate the wrong people. We pick up the wrong views. We pick up the wrong ideologies. This is why it's possible for you to know and for me to remind you and for you to agree that this life is a vapor, as James says. It's like a puff of smoke and then it's gone. And yet still, we build here. We, we construct our finances out of greed and out of fear as if this is all we have. Forgetting that we're not taking any of it with us. And that God is preparing a place for us that we can't even imagine. Paul says, beware of the rat race. Weep, care, invest, weep for the enemies of the cross. But don't be inspired by them. Don't imitate them. He says, imitate us. 
Imitate me, he says. And who are these enemies of the cross, by the way? It'd be another sermon to go into exactly who they are. But we can say this if we stand away from the text. They are people who earned Paul's tears. He, He was invested emotionally in the fact that they were headed towards destruction. Those who are enemies of the cross are those who are, in effect, declaring war on what the cross declares over mankind. And Paul's broken over it. Paul's broken over the fact that there are influential people influencing Christians to bypass the gospel, to get their hands on things that only the gospel really can give. I mean, one of the clarion calls from these enemies of the cross is just obey your bellies. Focus on the stuff of the world around you. Now, when he says obey your bellies, it doesn't mean your belly. I mean, it could mean your belly belly. It's your appetite, your hungers, your desires. You probably knew that already. And and listen, when it comes to obeying your appetites by focusing on the things of the world without the cross, that totally makes sense, right? It makes sense. If God is not what we desire with every fiber of our being, or in our last passage, where, where Paul was stretching and reaching and straining and forget everything behind him, if that's not our posture before God, all we have left is the stuff of the world. That's all we have left to, to make us feel satisfied and joyful in this world. So we eat what we want, and we say what we want, and we think what we want, and we watch what we want. We just do what we want. Pornography becomes how we serve the God of our appetites and finding comfort and finding pleasure, even though it was Jesus and his gospel that is the only thing that can answer that. We overwork because that's how we serve the God of our belly when it comes to finding security or identity or glory or comfort. And Jesus is the only thing that can really remedy those deep hungers and needs. Even social media becomes a tool to serve the God of our belly when what we're looking for is identity in this world. When God has given us an identity in Christ. You see, when our God is our belly, we'll do whatever it takes to feed it. That's not a Philippian problem. That's a me problem. That's an us problem. That's a humanity problem. But this declares war on the cross whenever it says that this world alone is the only thing that can give you what your soul hungers for. When the truth is, and the truth of the cross and the empty grave is that it is God that is the only one who can give you what your soul really hungers for. So it's a lie. We, Paul says, don't imitate liars. Another thing that the liars are saying, these enemies of the cross, is to freely parade what is shameful. To glory in our shame, in other words. You see, without the cross to erase our guilt and handle our shame, we are left with parading it around and celebrating it. Because we try to convince ourselves that if it's something that can be celebrated, if it's something that can be gloried in, then we don't have to feel guilty for it. We don't have to have any shame for it. In fact, if we can get a large enough people, a large enough group of people to say that this shameful thing is no longer shameful, then we don't have to deal with the guilt of it anymore. We don't even have to worry about it anymore. In fact, we could leverage it. We can parade it. We could leverage it to give us more identity and glory. This is why things that could not even be mentioned 50 years ago are paraded and celebrated openly today. This is why just in my lifetime, in my lifetime, the things that dudes wouldn't even whisper about in a locker room would get you 50 million subscribers today. 
and get you applauded today because that's what society does. That's what we do. We applaud and we approve of new ways of celebrating and glorifying what is shameful because it gives us an excuse to serve the flesh. If this whole mass of people finds this shameful thing not shameful anymore, then I don't have to feel guilt about it anymore. Paul touches this a little bit when he speaks to the Roman church. He says this in Romans 1. And since they do not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Again, Paul is weeping for those who flaunt their shame and glorify it. Because Paul knows what we know is that the cross is the only thing that can take our guilt and our shame and contend with it. The cross is the only thing that can do it. But if you're an enemy of the cross, you're saying the opposite. You see, the gospel leads us to invest our tears into this world, but not our hope. The gospel leads us to invest our energy into this world, but not our hope, not our future. Invest your tears towards those who say the cross is insufficient. Friend, they're all around you. You should cry. You should weep for them. And if you're not at a place where you're able to cry and weep, you should ask God, beg God to break your heart for the lost around you. Again, it's one of those prayers I call a dangerous prayer. Watch what happens when God starts to do it where you find remorse and you start to weep over those who are enemies of the cross and can't even see it. Can't even see it. Paul says cry for them, as he is, but don't imitate them. Don't be motivated. Don't mimic your life after them. Don't live as if this world is all you have. This isn't your home. Paul says imitate me. Which sounds a little prideful if we just admit it at face value. It says, imitate me instead. But understand, he's not saying imitate me because I've got it figured out and I'm perfect. I mean, we saw last week, if you just go back two breaths, a couple sentences earlier, he says, I've not arrived. I've not made it. I've got some work to do. But what he wants us to imitate is the fact that he is stretching and reaching and striving and forgetting all is behind him. And he considers Jesus to be the only prize in his eye. Among a sea of prizes, Jesus is the biggest prize. He says, imitate that. What's unique in this passage is we see four generations of imitation. We see Jesus being imitated by Paul. We see imitators of Paul, like Barnabas and Timothy, who were right there along the time when this was written, imitating him. But then we see it written to a Philippian church. And in fact, you and me, as we imitate Paul. So that's four generations. We see this a lot in the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.2, there's a fascinating passage where Paul is addressing his young disciple, and he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you have Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others also. That's another four generations. We see Paul talking to Timothy again in the letter before this, and he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. So we see him saying, Timothy, you need to be, you're, you're going to be imitated. Set yourself a good example in these things. And then the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, agrees with Paul whenever he says, remember your leaders in chapter 13, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Paul's point here 
is inspiration, right? Who we imitate our lives, or who we imitate with our lives. So, begs the question, who inspires you to follow them? Who inspires you to adopt their views and ideologies? Who's pulling it off? Who are you actually imitating? We're seeing a lot of messy, accelerated change right now. And the church is getting swept up in endorsing what it should be endorsing. Because it might be politically correct, or popular, or both. But friends, I've got some news. The church is never really ever going to be politically correct, is it? We're probably the least politically correct group of people on this planet. And people are getting canceled right now. We're canceling people and we're canceling institutions so quick, there's no trial even. People are losing jobs for things that they texted when they were a teenager. And now we're ambushing police, good police, just because they are police officers. It's kind of like, kind of like a radiation treatment for cancer. It's targeting something that needs to be fixed, something that needs to be killed, something that needs to be changed, but it's also killing everything around it. It's an indiscriminate killer. That's the kind of change we're seeing right now. In the effort to correct what needs to be corrected and change what needs to be changed, there's a lot being destroyed in the process. And it's getting harder for Christians, even for pastors, if I could just be all that honest, to take a scalpel and surgically dissect one thing from the other. And the church is complicit when it is imitating the wrong people. For instance, statues being pulled down right now. It's a great moment for us to look at that through the prism of this text. When the news is starting to spread over some of the statues being pulled down in different cities and different states, even here in Knoxville, some of them I look at, some of these statues I hear about, some of these statues I see with my own eyes, and I think, yeah, that needs to go. <laughs> that statue, <laughs> it didn't age well, right? It, it doesn't, it's, it's not a good statue. I don't want our black brothers and sisters walking by something that celebrates slavery. It doesn't make any sense. And I'm, I'm fine with it going away. I'm fine with the city pulling it down, putting some mothballs around it, and sticking it in a closet somewhere. Totally fine with that. Here's the thing, I don't care if that lines up with an angry college student's view, because that's not where I got it. I'm not imitating them in this. I, I, I'm imitating Christ and Paul and those who imitated Paul. It, it, this is what it looks like when the gospel on the ground is addressing very difficult topics. If we imitate the views and actions of others, we have to ask the question, are they trusting the gospel or are they just loud? Are they just loud? Are they just saying popular and politically correct things, or are they being biblical? We've got to ask those questions, because with the speed and the mess of change, it's getting very difficult to detect what is praiseworthy and what is nonsensical. It's getting hard. It's getting hard to not be influenced by the sea of consensus out in the world. By the way, as quick as next week, it could be the church that is easily canceled. Because Slavery is spoken about in here, right? So is God's view on homosexual behavior or submission within marriage or reconciling or any number of things. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Things I preach now are probably going to get me canceled tomorrow. You too.
You too. Can you see why it's important, if ever, for us to keep in two hands the truths that this is not our home, and yet we imitate those who are imitating Christ, as, as we long to imitate Christ himself? And no, that won't be the widest, most popular path we can walk on. In fact, Jesus says, um, because he was persecuted, we can pretty much bank on it. If we imitate his life, we're not going to um, avoid the things that the one that we imitate found, like persecution. In fact, he says it very clearly in Matthew 10. He says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is not enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Okay? But here's the reality behind it. Our God, he's a protesting God. He's angrier at injustice and brutality than you are. He's a protesting God. More than, more than anything that we can imagine, as far as wrath and anger against those marginalized, those on the edges of society being pressed down, God is angry. It's just that his scales look different than ours, and his remedy is different than ours. His remedy, in fact, is Christ's coming. That is his answer, very different than our answer. You see, Jesus came and was beautifully out of step himself. Jesus was weeping for the broken, He's enraged at injustice, and yet he wasn't anchored to this world because he's building another. He's building another. And Paul saw this life of Christ, and he imitated it. And then Paul and Epaphroditus, also imitating Christ, would see Paul do something that was Christ-like, and then they would imitate Paul. You see, that's how it works when we imitate each other. Of course we're imitating Christ, right? But there's sometimes I will see one of you do something that looks like Jesus. And I think, wow, I want to imitate that. I want to be like that. I want to do what that guy's doing. I want to do what that girl's doing. I want to do what they are doing. And I want to imitate you because you look like Christ. That's how the church is supposed to operate. That's what they're doing. He's calling us to imitate and be inspired by those who are imitating and being inspired by Christ. What is it that can dislodge our hearts from this world? Break our affections off of this world? Really only the gospel. Only the gospel. It's really the answer I give you for every sermon. It's God's answer for our shame and the guilt that finds us. And it's the gospel that changes our contract with this world. Our contract before Christ is, I will give my life to this world if this world can bring me joy and satisfaction. And the gospel comes in and changes the wording and changes our heart that says, my joy is in Christ now. So I'm free to give my life in this world because this world's not even my home. You see, when our destination is different and our prize is different, it changes our normal every day, doesn't it? It changes our every day. There's no rat race for the Christian anymore. No. We no longer take our cues from the influencers of this world, no matter how loud they get, especially those who disagree with the cross. You see, Christ comes and he saves us from this dreadful life of building sandcastles here right before the tide is rising. And he prepares a place for us, a place called home, 
a place beyond our imagination. He saves us from this dreadful life of trying to figure out what we're going to do with our shame and our guilt. You see, when Christ found me, I was an enemy of the cross. I was one who Paul was weeping for. I would have fit into that group. I didn't know what to do with my shame. All the shameful things I was involved in, the guilt that kind of kept pace behind, I didn't know what to do with that. I would have been happy to glorify it and celebrate it if somebody else or a bunch of other people said that there's nothing wrong with it. And without an appetite for God, I had an insatiable appetite for the things of this world. Anything the world can give me. My belly was my God. I saw no home after this life either. There was no world waiting after this world. So I grabbed onto the things of this world, this vapor of a place, with both hands as tightly as I could. But the gospel edited all of that, changed all of that. And these are the questions I have for you, because we have a lot to repent for in a passage like this, in a moment like this. Why are you here, Christian? Why are you here on this planet? What is the purpose behind your purpose? What makes you tick? Who are you imitating? Why? Are you able to turn from the voices that are powerful today, politically correct today, yet disagree with the word? Can you turn from those? Can you invest in this world without placing your hope in this world? Can you do that? Now listen, I know not everybody that's listening would maybe respond to those questions. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but maybe a searcher. Even if you're a skeptical searcher, you're still a searcher. Can I just address the shame that you carry? Because let's face it, you carry shame and a sense of guilt. And you've tried to cover it by your best attempts. And you're not alone in trying that either, by the way. I did the same thing. And you know why we do that? It's because Adam did the same thing in the garden. They used to walk unashamed. They used to walk totally vulnerable, totally naked before each other with no shame. Then when the fall came, they had shame. They could see their nakedness. And the first thing they try to do is cover their shame. How? Fig leaves. And we're still doing it. We're still looking for fig leaves to cover our shame, are we not? But the, the cool thing about that story in the garden is God saw that that covering was not going to work. So a body was broken and blood was spilt. And the skin of an animal covered them in a suitable direction. Now that is an echo from the true sound that is the gospel. Because one day, Jesus would come and his body would be broken and his blood would be spilt to cover our shame and our guilt ultimately. Because every fig leaf that we've ever tried has been a failure. It's at the foot of the cross where we carry our shame and where we carry our guilt. It's at the foot of the cross. We don't glory in it. We don't parade it. We carry it to Christ and we let him destroy it. And friends, there's so much to celebrate. Because there will be a day where Jesus will transform our lowly body, as Paul says in this passage, to be like his glorious body. These bodies came from ash. This body of dust with crooked teeth and crooked motives and crooked eyesight. This body of ash and dust one day will not have shame or guilt anymore. It won't have this lowly body anymore. This body of dust and ash won't experience crisis anymore won't be disrupted 
anymore. And the only accelerating change is the fact that my joy grows in increasing amounts every single second. That my view of God gets bigger and my joy gets deeper and I am more content and more happy and more pleased in God every second forevermore. That's the only thing that will change because it will increase. That's amazing to think about. But then again, as Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has ever heard, and no mind has ever imagined what it is that God is building for his people. So I want you to think about these questions as you go throughout the week. And again, just to repeat what I said at the beginning, we love you and we miss you. And if you need anything, you can find us on the front page of our website, it's set up so that you could get anywhere really quickly and we can find out how we can serve you the best as quick as possible. But we love you and I'm very excited to see you soon. I will talk to you next week. Have a great week. God bless.